With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Blame is part of the learning process, right? You, you look at yourself. It's not look at myself, I ruined this, I'm a loser. It's I made a bad decision, how do I fix it? Th- yeah. There's a huge difference between those two. It's absolutely true, and the term I use is actually subordinate your ego, right? Which is, which is a harsh term. Like when you say to someone, you need to subordinate your ego, and even that term is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable because people don't want to submit. People don't want to subordinate themselves. Yeah, I got scared just now when you pointed at me and said, <laughs> subordinate. And as soon as you take your ego out of the picture, it allows the other person to put their ego down, and now you can actually communicate with another human being in a positive way. Right, so what's an example lately in your life, like in the past year, where you've had to remind yourself, I need to take ownership of this situation? I remember in our very first podcast, which was uh-huh. like three or four years ago now, I st- I was a little nervous, and I started off saying, you and I probably have zero in common. And you said, I'm not so sure about that. And then it turns out like our views on really almost everything were very similar yeah, or at least sure. copacetic in some way. Like they, they matched in some way, although you're in better shape than me, <laughs> just a little bit. And you have more hair than me. So, you know, well, you know, you gotta, you're a Navy SEAL. So you gotta like keep it shaved just in case you're called into action <laughs> any moment. Um, could you ever get called into action? Like you're on, per- once you're a SEAL, always a SEAL, right? I'm I'm retired. Retired. Yeah, completely. I'm retired. Yeah. You did it for 20 years though. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like 18, right? Am I am I getting the number right? No, I mean I was in for 20 years. I mean I had I went through the initial training. Yeah. Which takes a year or whatever, but that's what I did. Yeah, and then you've you I mean we've talked about it, but you've seen your your highs and lows through all that. But that's obviously we're here to talk about your latest book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics by Jocko Willing, the famous great Jocko Willink in the house. <laughs> By the way, Jocko, I mention your book, Extreme Ownership, I would say at least once a week because that one concept of extreme ownership is so powerful. And I also love books where the title 
it like you if you know the title you know the book and then everything else is like just you fleshing out what that topic is and your stories and things like that but like i like sometimes I'll, something will go wrong and somebody will say to me oh well they screwed up or like let's say i'm doing a performance of something or a talk and the crowd is is not quite there people will say don't worry it was the crowd that was a bad crowd and i'm like no i always take extreme ownership what I, and then I, and then I analyze what am I doing? Not that I'm going to blame myself or be too harsh on myself, but you always have to at least acknowledge that you own the situation in order. You can't learn from it unless you own the situation. It's too easy to say that crowd was bad. Yeah. It's the, it's the number one way to start fixing your life is by saying I have control and the things that go wrong are my fault. And the minute you start saying, well, it's the crowd's fault, it's the market's fault, it's the competitor's fault, it's my employee's fault, it's the union's fault. All those things mean you you mean you don't have to change. Right, and I, I mean, this applies to every area of life. Like I remember uh, one time, I, this is like 12 years ago, I was investing and I was trying some weird option strategy and what happens is that you make a bet for where the market's going to be on a specific morning at 9.30 a.m. And and I don't know, Goldman Sachs sort of announces what the number is. And they announced a number that was ridiculous. And so I lost money, but they, they fixed it. You know, what people were telling me was, wasn't your fault. They were scamming everybody who was on your side of this bet. And I'm like, no, you got to take, you got to, I'm just not going to play that strategy anymore. Like it was my mistake for not, researching enough to see do people how do people play and maybe possibly manipulate this market you can't help the fact that the world is screwed up but i could help how i interact with the world or different parts of it yeah. so that's another example in investing you can't just say oh they fixed it they screwed everybody all right well why didn't you know that beforehand why mm -hmm. did you get into the game when you're when you don't have an advantage it's like going to a casino and playing you know, the roulette wheel, which is the house is fixed against you. Yep. You can't say, oh, the house screwed me. That's what they're going to do. That's what they're <laughs> supposed to do. So, uh, uh, I mean, like, and again, I feel uh, extreme ownership is just one of your, your, your tack. You, I mean, this book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics that just came out is really great because I feel it summarizes, it's almost like the, the Bible of all you've been saying about leadership across all of your books. And it's, it's summarized so concisely and, and you, you give lessons, you give stories, you, 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 you list the most important tactics and then how to get better at them. And, and for me though, always this extreme ownership is like a, a, a mantra almost like I have to, everything that goes wrong is, is, and it does. And again, I don't know how to better describe it. Like you can't be harsh on yourself because then that you'll fail to learn also. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe there's a nuance there somehow. There's a nuance between, you can't blame anyone else. That's rule number one of extreme ownership, I feel. But then also you can't really blame yourself either. You have to instead make sure you're learning. Yeah, I was gonna say it's it's blame is part of the learning process, right? You, you look at yourself. It's not look at myself, I ruined this, I'm a loser. It's I made a bad decision, how do I fix it? Yeah. There's a huge difference between those two. What's what's an example lately in your life, like in the past year, uh, where you've had to remind yourself, I need to take ownership of this situation. And you, by the way, you describe a great example in the book where you're, you're, so Echelon Front is your company where you give leadership advice to, you know, 
I don't know, I don't know your biggest client, but it's I imagine it's small companies to huge companies to governments to whatever. And you describe it an example, a hundred million dollar company, 32-year-old CEO. The CEO is is crushing it in every way. But for some reason you were feeling this angst about him. You thought he had this huge ego. And rule number one in your leadership tactics is be humble. So you thought you you had the you had the key on this yeah. CEO. Like there's something yeah. too egotistical. But then you realize maybe you were feeling egotistical because he was like six foot five, yeah. ripped, Absolutely. had a hundred million dollar company, only 32. And and you went up to him and he like was going to almost make fun of you. Like, oh, what are you going to do? Coach me? Yeah. And you were like, no, I just want to say, uh, you know, you're an excellent leader. You, you know, I could see from the top down, everyone looks up to your vision, looks up to you. You're doing a fine job. And then suddenly it broke him down. Yeah. And it, 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 you had this change where you took ownership of your of these negative feelings that you were feeling towards this person. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's absolutely true. And the term I use is actually subordinate your ego, right? Which is, which is a harsh term. Like when you say to someone, you need to subordinate your ego. And even that term is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable because people don't want to submit. People don't want to subordinate themselves. Yeah, I got scared just now when you pointed <laughs> at me and said subordinate. <laughs> so, but in that situation, you know, I, when I, when I went to the guy and I said, hey, you know, I just want to tell you I really respect what you do. I wasn't saying that so that I could get the upper hand. I was saying that because I had put my ego in check and I was admitting the truth. The truth was he was doing an awesome job. The truth was he was a stud. The truth was he was a great athlete and a smart guy. And all those things were really true. And I was just giving him credit and putting my own ego in check to let those words come out of my mouth. As soon as I did it, you know, he comes back and says, no, you're the one that's a badass. Yeah. You're a seal. You led men into combat and all that stuff. And as soon as you let, as soon as you take your ego out of the picture, it, it allows the other person to put their ego down. And now you can actually communicate with another human being in a positive way. Right. Because he did have some ego in the story. We can't totally say, you know, when he even says like, oh, what are you going to do? Coach me? That was yep. a little bit. Oh, for sure. You know, and you know what? You know what was and I talked about it in the story as well. Like when I talk to other people at the company, at his company, none of them were telling me like, oh, that guy's got a huge ego. That was one of the things that indicated to me that, oh, that was kind of one of the red right. flags that said, wait a second, no one else notices but me. It's you put two egos in a big room, they're going to start rubbing up against each other, you know? And that's what happened. You know, my big ego, mm -hmm. his big ego, they got close together, they created fiction. With other people that were below him in the chain of command, they didn't have big egos around him. They're, he's the boss. And so they just, they didn't notice it. They're, they're like, hey, yeah, no, he's great. He's, he's dynamic. Me, I, I, I had the big ego coming in and I realized it. By the way, you know, in, 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 in that story, that's kind of, I, I could kind of see um, uh, almost, not necessarily an improvement in storytelling because you're telling great stories from the beginning, particularly all the stuff that happened to you as a, a Navy SEAL and stuff when you were abroad and you're in your training. But um, uh, what's interesting in that storytelling is you're kind of giving us clues throughout the story that nobody, you know, you would feel this ego thing, but then you would bounce back to, but I would talk to employees, nobody was saying anything bad. Then there's some big, then you had some other indication that he might have an ego and you're all ready to tell him. But then there would be another indication that, oh no, this company is a hundred million in revenues. He's ripped, so he's got that discipline. And, and you know, so you're going back and forth until finally kind of the reveal is, oh, this might be me. And we were already starting to suspect that. But again, you, 
you took it one step further further which is not that it was just your ego but you you it was a local situation just between you and him like he might have had ego but it's just but like you yeah. like the way you put it your two egos rubbed up against each other and that was really the story it's not like he had to be it's not like he had to be coached to not have a big ego with you. He was fine in general, as indicated by all these other clues. You had to analyze kind of the dynamic between the two of you. And so that's both storytelling and nuance, but that's the hard part. How do you, when all the evidence is, is telling you this guy has an ego, it's kind of hard to detach a little bit and say, oh my gosh, um, screw, I'm taking extreme ownership. I have an ego here. Yeah. And here's the weird thing, right? If what's going to prevent me from in that situation, what would prevent me from detaching? What would prevent me from detaching and seeing what's going on would actually be my own ego. So, because I, I could sit there all day and say, oh, this guy thinks he's so smart. Oh, this guy thinks just because he got lucky with this one company. Oh, this guy thinks just because he got some genetic gift from God that he's all ripped and buffed that he thinks, I could sit there and say that all day long, right? Or I could actually look in the mirror, take ownership of the problem. Because I one one other clue that's in the story, and this is sort of the thing that, that red flagged for me that s signified this is on me, is that I always, whenever I have to work with someone, someone is really hard to work with someone that's got a bad attitude. I always pride myself that I'll go in there and I'm going to be friends with this person. I'm going to develop a good relationship and everything's going to be awesome. And someone, you know, people would say to me, uh, oh, you know, that guy's, that guy's terrible to work for. And I'd say, oh yeah, I always got along with him. Great. I'm not, not a jerk about it, but I'd say, well, you know, I, I, I got along with him pretty good. I, I love doing that. I love doing that. That's my own little ego. You know, when someone says I could never work for that guy, I go, oh yeah, I worked for him for two years. You know, you know, he had some quirks, but we always got along good. And I always feel good. So when I couldn't, when I when I spent a couple days with this guy and I wasn't able to say that to myself, I said, what is wrong? Oh yeah, what's wrong? Me. Yeah, and <laughs> and that's, I think, again, that's an example of the extreme ownership is to always look at yourself. I don't want to necessarily say first because you are looking at the clues around you, what's going on. Like also you could be misjudging a situation maybe you thought something was bad and it's not. So it's not like you have to take extreme ownership of, you know, if it's not as bad as you think. I mean, there's, again, there's a lot of nu nuances, but I think, you know, the first rule of leadership strategy and tactics in this book that you just wrote is be humble. And it's, all of these things are connected, right? There's, it, it's, there's no one skill called leadership. There's all these sub skills. Yeah. And it's, it's, I love the fact that you say that because you know the deal when it comes to these interviews, like you know TV interviews and all that. They want to know, or or articles. They want to know what's the one skill that you need to improve on as a leader. Uh, what's the three things that you need to do to communicate? They, like, everyone wants these clickbait, soundbite type things. But as you just said, it's 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 like how how can you get better at basketball, right? practice jump shots no you got to practice jump shots dribbling layups uh passing understanding plays pick you gotta there's all this stuff and by the way basketball is a finite thing with rules leadership is insanity right, right. leadership is crazy people different scenarios different dynamics so to say that here's the thing you have to do is very hard the only the closest thing i can come to answering that question is well you got to be humble because if you're not humble then you're not going to listen. You're not going to learn. You're not going to look at yourself. You're not going to think that maybe you made a mistake. And if you don't do any of those, well, then you're not going to progress. Right. It's, it's, it's similar to the quote, like, you know, don't judge yourself by the quality of your, 
answers, judge yourself by the quality of your questions. So like you have to be, you have to be willing in every situation to question what's happening as opposed to knowing all the answers. And, and, and that's a good point that there is no one thing. Like I always say this, you mentioned about basketball and I think this is true for all games, but like entrepreneurship, which is obviously related to leadership. Uh, you know, there's no skill as entrepreneurship. You have to be good at coming up with ideas, executing ideas, selling ideas, selling a vision. So people invest or buy your company, motivating employees, delegating appropriately. And all these skills are not really related to each other. Like if you could be good at selling a product, but horrible at making a product. So it's, it's, again, I think people, I think academics, I, I don't want to throw all of academia under a bus, but you'll see like books about management as if there's one skill you have to learn. And, the, and, and, but I think the real learners, the ones who learn the fastest know how to break down something into its sub skills. Like, I don't know, tell me something on the battlefield where there must be lots of sub skills oh, for sure. in terms of like, when you're in a fight, like even shooting a gun is like, you have to learn how this gun's different from this gun, how to, I'm just being naive, but how to load it, how to aim. I'm waiting for your it. weapons expertise right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> well, by the way, okay. This, this is related. Did you notice after the Iran, you know, we, we, we use this drone, we got this guy Soleimani mm -hmm. and then suddenly everybody on my Facebook feed was like a military expert in the Middle East. Yeah. I, I got asked something about that the other day and I was, I was doing a live event and someone said, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? I said, well, thank you for asking. I don't know why you just don't ask the 50 million Middle East experts on Twitter right now. It just now. appeared. Like, yeah. <laughs> I had never heard of Soleimani before January 3rd. And then suddenly everyone was analyzing. Well, he was this and that. And then Iran has nuclear missiles. No, they don't. Or yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then just the way people tracked, well, it's our fault from 1953. No, it's their fault from 1979. No, it's our fault from December 27th. <laughs> like, I, the arguments on social media and just every click, Mark Zuckerberg's making, making another penny. Like, it's just, <laughs> uh, it's just insane. But at some point, again, be humble is the first rule. So, okay, this is an, a conflict that's obviously very complicated and nuanced, and I know nothing. So <laughs> how do I learn a little bit more so I can be informed, but I'm not certainly not going to lecture anybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think ego in, in the current climate that we have in the country, this really divisive climate, I think ego has a lot to do with it because when you present me with your idea, I just think I'm right and you're wrong. And I'm not willing to move. You know, I'm not willing to, to adjust my viewpoint at all. I'm hundred percent right which means you must be wrong no matter what you tell me. And that's pretty much when you go on social media, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get people that are dug in on one side or people that are dug in on the other side. And th that's, that's... And they hate you. Oh, yeah, they hate you. Like, yeah, yeah. even if, even if I'm... And this has been brought up before on different, on different interviews I've seen, but even if I'm left of center, the, the people now, uh, because everything's so polarized, people who are you know, really left, which is sort of dominating the conversation, will think I'm practically a fascist. Oh, just oh absolutely. If I'm just left of center, like <laughs> I'm automatically alt-right all of a sudden. And, and vice versa. If I'm right of center, people who are conservative will think, oh, you're a libtard. I've been called a libtard and a, a fascist in the same, like, in the same Twitter thread, argument, which, by sure. the way, I'll take extreme ownership. I started a Twitter <laughs> argument. Like, how stupid am I? So... Uh, uh, but what, you know, I feel like, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this 2012, even 2008, I felt like 
elections were more, I don't want to say civil because they're always kind of bloody, but I, I looked at Mitt Romney. I looked at Barack Obama. They both had interesting things. I looked at McCain. I looked at Obama in 2008. They both had interesting things. Now it's not the same. Now you're not allowed to say, oh, well, I like these ideas here. I like these. I'm going to be solutions oriented. I like these solutions. This guy has it. I like these solutions. This guy has. You can't do that anymore. Now it's a menu. You either pick all the items on this menu or all the items on this menu. Yeah, no, that's definitely what it feels like. And certainly if you, let's say you, you want to order this menu, but you happen to mention that you wouldn't mind having this for dessert, everybody over here now hates you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a crazy time. So, so, okay, as a leader i'm curious how you would approach this and like so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll ask this i'll tell my uh version but uh so i have a an investment business and my partner and that has been partners with me since 1999 on every issue i would say is politically the opposite of me and yet we have not had one single argument we <laughs> we we discuss it we reach some consensus we agree to disagree it's because none of these issues really are that big a deal in our daily lives. And then we run our business, but like, but sometimes as, as a leader, you can't do that because people, like we were just saying, people will not like you for your issues. Yeah. You know, the, the extreme version of the extreme answer to questions is generally not going to be correct. Right. The extreme yeah. answer to a question is generally as a leader, like, uh, let's say you got a business and we're saying, well, we, we uh we missed revenue this quarter. We want to save money. Okay, let's fire everyone. Right? That's the extreme answer. The extreme answer is we'll fire everyone and then our costs go down and, and we'll make money. That, that's obviously not the right answer. The other answer is like, well, we don't want to make any adjustments because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. That's because so we need to keep everybody and keep our costs where they're at and just hope the market does better. That's not the right answer either. The right answer is somewhere in the middle. And that's the same way with most things. And so when, when somebody brings one of these like political issues to me, first of all, like I, I don't engage in, in Twitter battles, right? I'm not, I'm not a, I, I'm not a veteran of the meme war, even though I do enjoy memes, but I, I mean, you can't, you can't argue with me about stuff. Cause I'm, I, I just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But, but now there's the point, there's also the side which says, if you don't engage, you're also a fascist. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's that's a good point. I've had, I, you're 100% right, because I've had people say, your silence is complicity in this whatever right. thing. And I go, okay, I guess if you think I'm complicit, okay. You know, and the, but who who's on Twitter? Who are these people that are yelling right. and screaming? They're the far left, they're the far right, normal human beings. I, I mean, I, the, the, the blessing for me is I work with companies all over the country literally all over the country, every industry, finance industry, insurance industry, manufacturing, uh, uh, construction, gas oil, everything. We work with everything. I meet with all kinds of people all the time. They're not on Twitter yelling and screaming. They're, they're working. Right. They're, they're trying to improve the world. They're trying to improve their life. And so these people out on the fringes that are going crazy, I just, I just can't be bothered with them. But, but that's an interesting point too because everyone acts like, Oh, uh, you know, there's the whole notion of an influencer now. If you have, based on your social media following, you're an influencer. But I'm not so sure these people are influencing anything other than other people on other 12 year olds on social media. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you got to get on TikTok now. It's a new thing. There's only 13 year olds on TikTok. Who am I trying to get in front of? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, or even Instagram, it's like, it's not like someone's going to look at my a picture on Instagram and 
change their life because of a photo <laughs> I have. Like, so how much do you see like actual leadership or, or really important decisions that affect people's lives happen because of Twitter or Facebook or even LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, well, we could we could use the argument with Donald Trump. He he does some things on Twitter that definitely have an impact. Of course, he's the president of the United States right now. So. Yeah, and, and I, and but I guess though he's used that as a platform to replace media for sure. So for instead sure. of looking for a press conference for him on ABC, I'll I'll look at his tweets to see how he feels about a situation. You know, yeah, yeah. actually, you get the you get the word from the horse's mouth there, huh? Right, and and but there's not that many situations. It's not like I need to see, well. What does Jocko think about this? I'm gonna look on Twitter to see what's going on because I know you don't really participate yeah. that much in those discussions. Yeah. So it's very few people do. Yeah, and the other strange thing is you have Twitter on the one hand, which is 280 characters, and then we have long form podcasts where we'll sit there and talk to each other for an hour, two hours, three hours, and like I absolutely prefer to listen to what people's full articulation of their thoughts and yeah. all these nuances. You know, I, I've been obviously coming off a of press week. I've been answering questions, you know, in two minutes and 15 seconds and get, you know, you, you just boom, boom, boom. There's, there's, there's just not enough thought behind those answers. There's not enough depth to them to really understand what someone's talking about. And it's like even answering questions about this new book, you know, they asked me the, the, they asked me the question, what is the most important thing? Oh, it's being humble. Okay, cool. Thanks. You know, like there's, like you said, a million other things to learn. There's, you know, 80,000 words in that book, not just two. Right. So if you want to really have a better understanding, you have to, you have to invest somewhat. So I lean towards that. I lean towards forms of communication that allow more articulation and more nuance. Right. I think that's why podcasts are probably have, I don't even, like people have been saying for a long time, like, oh, podcasts are moving straight up. I feel it's only in this past year that I've actually, only in the past six months, I've started listening to podcasts. I've been doing this for six years. I didn't even listen to my own podcast for six years. But in the past six months, I finally started listening to podcasts and there are, it's, there are conversations worth listening to because to get different perspectives and insights and ways of thinking, but you'll never get that like, I'm never going to figure out what, let's say, Joe Rogan thinks by looking at his Twitter feed. I'm going to, but, but he puts 24 hours of content up a week. Like, that's how you're going to know what that guy thinks. For sure. And he thinks about a lot of things. Yeah, he does. He so does indeed. He's, he's, he's insane. Yeah. In a good way. I mean yeah. that in the best of ways. Joe Rogan, don't take that personally. <laughs> no, Joe's awesome. You know, he's, he really is. And people ask me all the time, what's, what's he really like? You know, and he's he's just, he's just a great guy. He's nice. He's totally humble. When you think about the position he's in as a human being right now, he's just totally humble, laid back, super nice guy. He's the same way, you know, when he's talking on the podcast as when you're, you know, hanging out, he's just and, really, really good guy. And by the way, what an odd question. What's he really like? Because he's on a podcast, 24 hours of his waking life per week. You can only like, fake it for so long. Right. So just listen to the podcast. And, and, you're going to uh, see what he's like. Some sections of those, he's either drunk or high or both. So you're getting some reality from that guy too. By the way, which is pretty hardcore because I don't know how he keeps like such a consistent thread. Sometimes not so consistent, but <laughs> he keeps such a consistent thread when he's high. Like, wouldn't you just forget where you are and just, yeah. who is my guest today? Yeah. By the way, I thought it was a really great choice um, when he had you and Tulsi Gabbard on at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. Uh, yeah, and uh, uh, 
you know, Tulsi Gabbard, there's all this controversy around, but, but I really respect her opinion and, and yours as well. Having been in the armed forces, Hey, you know, there's all these Facebook armchair soldiers saying, look, now we got to nuke Iran or whatever. And, you know, there's reasonable thinking to say, look, we also don't want to kill 80 million secular citizens who hate their leadership. You know, yeah. you got to be, it's got to be thoughtful. There's nuance to this. It's not like all these armchair, like literally everyone is a general on Facebook, as we started saying earlier. And they, <laughs> and you can't, you can't listen to them. So I, I think her opinion is, is interesting. I don't know if yeah, I, and what I like about Tulsi is, you know, I, there's all kinds of things I don't agree with Tulsi on, you know, but I can talk to her all day long and, you know, communicate with her. And I'm sure if we were working together, we'd come to compromises that made sense. And so she, she seems, at least on, on for the Democratic Party, the one to me that seems like a, a sane human yeah. that could actually work and make things happen. Like I said, there's all kinds of things I don't agree with her. Like if I looked at her platform line by line, I'd say, oh yeah, I don't agree with that. And I, I don't agree with that. That seems okay. You know what? I mean, it doesn't mean that I can't go on a podcast with her. It doesn't mean I can't send her a tweet and say, hey, uh, you know, that was funny or what she posted. You know, she, we go back and forth. She sends me a text, you know, about this, that, or the other thing. You know, she's just, she just seems like a, a, a thoughtful person who, you know, she has ideas of what's good for the country. I don't agree with every idea that she has, but at least I can talk to her. She seems like she, she is, she's a nice person. I met with her, I hung out with her, you know, she's a nice person and, and that means something. She's thoughtful. So, uh, it was cool to go on with her. It's cool to talk to her. And, 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 you know, even afterwards I said, you know, we were texting back and forth and I said, well, cause she was taking heat, you know, cause I'm now in all these Twitter threads with her Yeah. and you know, the, the, the extreme left is you know, jumping on her, you should have confronted Jocko about this and you should, and you know, and I said, well, you've got some people on the extreme left that are mad at you. And guess what? Guess what was happening on the extreme right? You didn't, you didn't confront Tulsi about gun control, like the, the same thing. So we're both getting attacked from the far left, far right. And she said, yeah, she said, I don't, I'm not worried about those people. And I said, ah, cool. So it's, it's all fun. It's good. It's good to build a shell because I think I think for a while, let's call it maybe 2007, 2008 to 2015, social media was where people presented opinions and, and there were almost semi-reasonable arguments. But, but like we've been just saying for the past 10 minutes, it's just gotten crazy and you have to build, even if you were immersed in it before, you have to build a shell now because yeah. it just, it will drive you insane. What it seems like is in whatever, those years ago where you seem some logical things, it'd be like walking into a room and there'd be two people having a discussion. Right now you walk into the Twitter room, you walk into the Facebook room, it's just a bunch of people and they're yelling and screaming and you can't make sense of it. And if you want to yell, you know, people put together these threads in Twitter that are, you know, 19, 20, 21. They're just thing, thing, thing. Yeah, yeah. You're like, wait, man, I'm not reading that. Come on. Yeah. And you already know where you stand from your opener. So I know where you're going with this. It's like, man, I'm going to go into a room where there's less people talking and they're doing it in a more civilized manner. Well, let's say, you know, so, so this pertains to leadership. Let's say you go into a company and somehow like what, what's, what's just a mess that you've seen, like company that should be good, but like everybody's fighting, not only just about jobs and this person got this promotion, but I deserved it. The, the leader's bad. Uh, uh, and he's a, he's a commie or he's a, uh, a, a fascist and I'm, you know, pro this or pro that. 
like some situations, can you really train someone to be better, a better person or better at what they do or more motivated? Well, what you can do is say, listen, this is a classic example. You get all this infighting and, and I'll be telling a group like that, hey, the enemy is outside the wire. And what that means is, look, we're in here in our perimeter and the barbed wire is protecting us and we're sitting in here. The, the barbed wire is protecting us from the enemy. The barbed wire is protecting us from our competitors. And we're sitting inside the barbed wire stabbing each other. What, what good is that? How about we work together and we go attack the competitor? We go attack our enemy instead of attacking each other. That's going to make all of our lives better. So, so that's where, that's one place to start when we have infighting inside companies, which happens, yeah, it happens all the time. But I feel like you could go in there and say that and they're all going to agree with you and then you're going to leave and maybe that feeling stays around for a week, two weeks, and then. Yeah, well, we don't, we don't, I, to your point, I say all the time, leadership, it, there's no inoculation for leadership. I can't walk into your company that's mayhem and give a talk and walk away and now everyone's got it. No, no, no. It's, it's like saying if you and I went and I did a workout with you this morning and now you're in shape. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to work out every yeah, day. Yeah, believe me, it won't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> you have to work out every day. You have to get on a program. You have to think about it. You have to continue to train so that you learn how to lead and you learn how to work together. So that's why it's a consulting company. It's not a, it's not a hey, I'm going to come and talk to you for an hour and now everything's fixed. It doesn't work that way. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. 
And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You You might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So, I mean, we do a bunch of things. This podcast is one of them. And we've had uh, employees where I could just see they, they consistently don't show up on time. Again, we will try to motivate. And I don't know. I think I'll, I'll be honest. I, I'm not the best leader. I'm not the best at difficult conversations. I'm not the best at motivation. And so you won't, you know, you'll see someone motivated for a little while, but then gradually they get back to being late, not being as detail oriented as they should be given their job description. And, you know, I'll have different people say, well, I'll work with them a little more. I'll train them a little more. And my gut instinct is always to say, you cannot train them. You cannot make them better. They're ne- their agenda is somewhere else. It's not here, even though this is their job, it's they're they're eventually not going to be here because that you can't train them. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not though. No, that's absolutely true. There are some people that don't want to do something. They're not capable of doing something. They're not motivated to do something. And that's absolutely true. You know, when I was a task unit commander, there was two people that we fired before we went on deployment. Like we, we did it. We, we tried to help them. We tried to work with them. One of them was not capable of doing it just because he didn't, he just, he just didn't have the, the, the ability to do the job. He just didn't have the ability to do the job. He's a hard worker. He's a great guy. He's a patriotic guy. Didn't have the ability to do the job. And if you can't do the job and you got other people relying on you, you can't be on you can't be on the team. It doesn't work. The well, other what can I ask what job he couldn't do? When you, for instance, when you go into a room and you've got live weapons, you're shooting real real bullets, and the training cadre puts targets in the room, different places. There's things that you have to go into that room. You immediately have to assess what you see. You have to shoot the bad guys. You have to not shoot the good guys. You have to move through the room dynamically with other people shooting near you. So that's called close quarters combat. And it takes a, it takes a level of 
it's, you have to have a certain cognitive capacity to be able to process what's happening with, when it's being when it's when it's with a high level of stress as well. So you can't just be able to think through things because, like, if I was to say, okay, just walk into this room and tell me what you see, and then shoot the bad guys, he would have been able to do it, right? But when it's, hey, we're moving dynamically, there's explosions going off, there's other people moving through the it's room. Dark. It's dark. There's when you add those elements of stress and the other element of stress is like, if you mess this up, you're going to get fired. All that stress on top of the challenging dynamic situations, he couldn't quite put it together. And, and, you know, he was a hard worker and a really nice guy and a patriotic guy, but for the sake of the rest of the team, we can't keep him on the team because if he doesn't perform at the moment of truth in real combat, Someone could get killed. He could get killed. Someone else on the team could get killed. So totally hard decision to make, you know? And we did everything we could to coach him up and get him ready, and it, it didn't work. So we, we we had to eliminate him. So what you're saying about your team, yeah, sometimes that's true. Sometimes you have someone that just doesn't, not capable or doesn't want to do the job. And, and your guy, he is someone who already went through all the Navy SEAL training. Yep. You know, the boot camp, the whatever. Oh, yeah, boot camp. So he's like hardcore, wants to do this. Yes. And now we're we're in a situation where out of every hundred people, ninety-seven of them are employed. Probably a lot of them shouldn't be, but but they are. And I'm not saying people should be jobless, but not you know now there's just so much demand for people. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, not everyone's going to find the right space for them, and and they're going to be less motivated than someone who went through brutal training to get there. So I think it's happening a lot more in the corporate world now that just you have you have the wrong I don't know what it is the wrong screws for the wrong size holes i don't know what yeah, the yeah. Is. what do they say square pegs and yeah, turn yeah. force them into round holes yeah yeah yeah. i'm sure that there's high demand for workers there's low number of workers people are going to get hired that probably aren't the most capable sure. i mean when you're advising companies now do you see is there has there been a changing dynamic in that um more people are not quite fit for the position so that's why there's more conflict and and leadership is, requires some different skills you know there's a, there's a high demand for good people all the time mm -hmm. like there's a high demand for good people all the time the demand signal so high for good people that like i started another two businesses where we're taking folks from the military from special operations and, and from the regular military and placing them into companies because that demand signal is that high so yeah the, there's a high demand signal for that and I, I i can't say specifically like oh five years ago i saw people that were better in companies most of the companies that we work with are not companies that are all messed up. Most of the companies that we work with are companies that are doing pretty well and they want to do better. Mm. So I haven't seen like, oh, there's more bad people. I see continued increase in we need good people. So that that's interesting though, because what has changed though is that you started this other branch, like almost like a headhunting company, which or an employment company, which finds good trained people who are disciplined and places them into jobs you think are good for them. And so it's an important business thing too. Like everybody says, oh, you got to focus on your business. You got to focus, focus, focus. But I always view business as like, if you have a core set of values, that's like this, the core or the center of a wheel. And then you have spokes. So, okay, we're going to do consulting as one spoke. We're going to do uh, employment headhunting is another spoke. We're going to write books and create media is another spoke. And that's a little bit more scalable. 
so your business has been evolving as well to create these spokes. Yeah, and so the way I describe what you just talked about is in in the theory of war, when you're attacking a target, what you're looking for is a gap, some kind of a some kind of a chink in the army, some, some armor, some kind of a hole where you can get through. When you see that, you exploit that. You go and you go harder into that. So what you're saying is exactly right. You know, I've I, I started off talking to people about leadership. Okay. That eventually fed into a book. Okay, well, that, that seems like something to do. Okay, that expanded the business. Oh, wait a second. I should actually talk to people on a regular basis about war and leadership because people like to hear me talk about that and I like talking about it. Boom, start a podcast. That starts to grow. Now I got my podcast going. Well, what am I going to do with this podcast? Well, people want to know actually what I literally what I'm drinking on the podcast. What do you drink during the podcast? Okay, well, maybe I need to start making what I drink on the podcast. So start making supplements. Now they want to know, you know, hey, you train jujitsu all the time. What what kind of jujitsu gi should I get? Well, they want to know what kind of jujitsu gi I should get. Maybe I should be making jujitsu gis. So now I got the business where we're making jujitsu gis. And then they want to know, well, what do you wear when you're out on the weekends? Guess what I'm going to wear? Oh, I wear jeans. Why not start making jeans? That's why I'm wearing these jeans right now. What what about what kind of shoes you wear? I'll make these boots. Everything that I can, every time I see that gap, that there's a need, there's a demand. The demand signal, I see the demand signal. It's like, oh, people, and by the way, make all this stuff in America because people want to buy American-made things. Okay, great. Make jeans in America. Make jujitsu gis in America. Make boots in America. Bring manufacturing back to America. This stuff is... And and this all is off the fact of what you're talking about. Whereas when you when I see a gap, when I see a, a demand signal for something, I look. And now look, of course, I see demand signals for uh, new headphones, right? I'm not going to start an electronics company. I might look at it for a few seconds before I go. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to start building electronics. But when I say, hey, look, we're already making jujitsu gis. Can we make can we make jeans? Yeah, we can make jeans. Boom, let's go. So that's been that's been. Uh, that's been awesome for me and I'm still looking, you know? So, so that's part, that's part of leadership too, I think, which is, uh, to be kind of creative in the decisions you make to, at any point you have a range of decisions. We could focus on just getting new clients for echelon front. But like you said, we, we see this demand signal for X. Should we do this or not? Let's evaluate. Let's make a decision. So, a, how do you how do you go about that decision making? And you and you mm-hmm. just talk about being decisive in 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 the book uh, as as a leadership skill. And B, how do you determine a how to experiment? You know, because so, at first you want to experiment. You don't want to just make a hundred thousand genes. You want to figure out what's the right experiment. How do you design that experiment? Because that's part yeah. of leadership. And then, uh, uh, you know, how do you identify the demand signal? Mm-hmm. And and why do you use the phrase signal there? Well, because you're 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 listening to what people are. Well, I guess you, in the in the military, <laughs> these signals how you talk them back for right back and forth to each other. So, to answer your question, how do you make these? And you talked about you say be decisive in the book, which absolutely I say be decisive. But this is what's cool, and it's what you just kind of talked around. I call it iterative decision making. Right. So when I started thinking to myself, man, I. I wish I could make, you know, jujitsu gis in America. The chances of me being able to pull that off when I've got all this other stuff going on were zero. I started looking around to find who is make who is there anyone that's doing this? It turns out there was only one human being and one company that was actually making stuff in America. It's a guy up in Maine named Pete Roberts who had 
You, you heard me tell the story on Joe Rogan. Dragged a, an old loom out of a factory, up a, an abandoned factory up in Maine, started making these things. I reached out to him and, you know, uh, someone connected us and said, hey, this guy Jocko, he's got a really popular podcast and he would like to talk to you about, you know, your company. And Pete's response was, what's a podcast? You know, he didn't even know what a podcast was. He was busy on his loom. He was busy <laughs> weaving material up in the middle of Maine. Mm -hmm. But so what I did was I didn't say, hey, I want to come in and, you know, dump a million dollars into your company. I didn't come in and say, hey, I want to buy you out. I didn't come in and say, I want to buy your looms. No, what I said was, hey, would you mind, you know, maybe we could do some work together. Maybe I could, you know, put some word out about your stuff. And he's, and he doesn't want to take huge risk either, right? So he goes, well, that, that sounds cool. Yeah, sure. Talk about him. I start talking about the geese. All of a sudden, people start buying the geese. And then what does it say? He, he goes, oh, yeah, that seemed to work pretty good. I said, yeah, it did, didn't it? And then you go down the path. So you make these little decisions. And, and each decision indicates whether that was a good decision or not. So now, okay, the geese went really good. The geese sold really well. Cool. Well, how many people do jujitsu? Well, it's a tiny population of America. How many people wear jeans? Everybody wears jeans. Okay, cool. What if we made jeans that everyone could buy? Okay, let's give that a try. Okay, well, you're right. Did we make 300,000 pair of jeans out of the gate? No, we made 200 pairs. It's like, okay, guess what? Everybody wants them. Cool. Let's make more. And that's what we're doing. Boots, same thing. Does anybody want, does anybody want a pair of boots that are made in America, high quality? Well, let's see. Let's make 400 pairs. Okay, cool. Guess what? People want them. Let's make more. And you know, I think, you know, there's a, there's a saying, ideas are a dime a dozen, execution is everything. And I think that phrase is somewhat insidious because there's a spectrum of good execution to bad execution. So yeah, maybe execution is everything. Who knows? But but I've seen a lot of people do really bad execution on what could have been good ideas and just screw it up. Like you could have said, man, everybody wants Jocko jeans and we're going to make a hundred thousand and get a warehouse and raise some money, uh, get a line of fine, uh, an equity line to finance all this. And that would have been bad execution. Mm -hmm. And, but I see a lot of people do that. Like you see people, uh, I don't want to, also, I always keep saying, I don't want to throw someone on the bus. Let's throw Silicon Valley under the bus for a second. So everybody says, oh, I'm going to, I have a great idea. I'm going to raise $10 million from venture capitalists. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go all in. They don't even have a customer yet. So they have no, you can't know if something's a good idea until there's demand signal, until you have a, a, a customer. So again, there's a lot of bad execution. I like this iterative decision-making as sort of on the good side of the execution spectrum. Yeah. I mean, even Echelon Front, Echelon Front started with just me and Leif, you know, and we didn't have an office. We didn't have an employee and we, we would work and we would just go out and do what we did. And as the demand signal grew, we responded and we eventually brought someone in that could take care of the backside stuff so that we could focus on working with clients. And then we brought on another instructor and then another instructor, and there are more backside people. And as the demand signal increased, the, we increased our business and it, and it got to a point, you know, the same thing. Like we got to a point, I had a client say to me that client had 150,000 employees globally. And he said, I want you to train all my employees. And I said, okay, okay, okay. Hold on. How am I going to do that? Okay. What can we do? Oh, let's make an online training program. 
EF online. Boom, here you go. Now there's a demand signal for it. We invest in it, we create it, and now we start to we start to capitalize on the fact that we have a great product out there that you don't need me or someone from my team to go into your company and train every single person. You can they can be online, interactive, you get put in leadership situations, you got to make decisions. It's awesome. And it's once again because leadership training is not inoculation that you get one time. Even if you have echelon front team in your building, in your company, working with your folks, when we leave, there's a vacuum. Fill that vacuum with more training, online training. People are getting repetitive iterations to continue to learn. So yeah, it's like you said, different spokes. There's one way to look at it. For me, I look at it as opportunities, right? Opportunities, you test them, you make some iterative decisions towards them, your best guess if it's going to be right. If it turns out wrong, cool. I mean, I how many... How many ventures have you looked at, measured, maybe taken one step towards, eh, it doesn't look good, back out? I mean. Uh, probably every day. Yeah. And I know you've done some uh, non-iterative decision-making where you've jumped in yeah. with both feet. And, and that is disaster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I do try, I do think of things to try every day. I like to do little experiments and just see if something catches fire. And by the way, 99% of things don't, but it doesn't mean I don't learn something from every experiment. Mm -hmm. Like even if something, you know, nothing fails, right? You yep. always try something and you learn something new. Yep. Uh, you know, cause I've, I don't know, I have ideas I'm trying all the time that are just insane. But I tried uh, a, a few months ago, I actually thought it was a really good idea. Trump had tweeted, uh, I want to buy Greenland. And, <laughs> and Denmark's like, well, it's not for sale, which by the way, everything's for sale. But uh, and then I'm thinking, why would he say that about Greenland? Like everyone's like, oh, he wants to nuke this or nuke that. But it turns out they have like enormous natural resources. And there's a company like Greenland National Resources completely owned by China. So that was a red flag. Like, oh, something's happening here. And so I started a Kickstarter. Took me like a few hours to set up. I started a Kickstarter where I listed the reasons why I should buy Greenland. And I started raising money. It was a GoFundMe actually. Why I should buy Greenland so nobody owns it except me. And it's like semi-joke. The, the funding goal was $100 million. People actually started putting in a 1,000 here, a 1,000 there. And then GoFundMe was like, uh-uh, not happening. We're shutting this down. But the whole process took about 48 hours. It was a little experiment. Taught me not only about, I had never done a crowdfunding campaign before. I had never researched Greenland before. And it was another way of presenting things other than a straight article. Yeah. So it was a learning experience. Yeah, no, that's 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 a great example of uh, having fun, learning, taking some chances, a little bit of investment, and a little bit of investment. You actually got some good stuff out of it. Yeah, tiny, no investment of money, just tiny investment yeah. of time. Yeah. And and yeah, it was it was, um, and I get a story out of it, which is always a, a valuable thing for me as a as a storyteller. Wanted to get to your list of uh, the 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 new leader, the twelve things, one fifty eight. 158. Yeah. I know I have it bookmarked. See? Bookmarked. There you go. Uh, Me too. You know, because there's so many, you know, obviously all the stories in the book are great, and that's where you really learn what these tactics mean and what these nuances mean. But, you know, it's each one of them. I kept, I kept reading. I actually skipped a page by accident while I was reading this, and I started with number six, which is pass credit for success up and down the chain. And I thought, oh, that's a good number one. And then I realized it was number six. But that's an important thing that I remember the very first job I had, everyone said, watch out for your boss because he always 
takes credit for what his employees do. And I was thinking to myself, even then, I want him to take credit for it because the better he does yeah. because of what I do, the better I'm going to do. He's my boss. He's the yeah. one who actually <clears throat> gives me freedom or takes it away at this job. So I thought that was such a great thing that the, the, the leader actually needs zero credit. They only need to pass credit up and down yep. and connect the two. Yeah, and I think the uh, all the time people always say, oh, when something good happens, pass the credit to your team. And, and like you like you caught, that's absolutely important. You want to give credit to your team. But you also, if you're smart, you give your credit to the boss as well because the boss is the one that did give you the support. And even if the only support they gave you was getting out of the way so that you could do your job, they still need credit for that. So it's a great way to build a relationship. It's a right. great way this to build another, trust. Uh, right? uh, factor. It does all those things. And like you said, if I give my boss credit, my, my boss is happy. If my boss is happy, my boss gives me more freedom. If I get have more freedom, I can do a better job. So it's a it's a solid thing to do. Yeah, let's say, let's say no one ever knows. Let's take an extreme. You give your boss and your team credit for everything. So no one knows you're involved at all. But your boss is doing such a great job because of the work of you and your team. He keeps getting promoted. Yeah. Oh, it's certainly better for you if he's the CEO of the company yeah. than a, a, a mid-level VP of the yeah. company. And by the way, when he gets promoted to CEO, who's he going to move to the VP position? Exactly. He's going to move you. And, and, and look, you're not doing this so that you can get the VP position. You're doing this so that the team performs better. And by the way, since you are a good leader, when you do get promoted to the VP position, that means your team is going to be protected. You're going to be able to do a better job. So you're doing this. And this is a, the the core tenet of the whole book is like, listen, you're doing this for the mission. You're doing this for the team, for the people that you care about. That's what your goals got to be. If you do this stuff because you want to maneuver and, and, and get promoted yourself and find the easiest job and find the pathway to where you don't have to do anything and you get paid a lot of money for it. If that's what you're doing, that you won't be able to pull this off because people can see it. People right. can see it. And it's always that person right. that thinks that they're so smart that, you know, I'm doing this maneuver over here to get myself promoted. No one will ever notice. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. And you know what kind of person thinks that no one's going to see it? It's the person that lacks humility. The person that thinks they're so smart that I'll just make this maneuver and no one will see it. Everyone goes, oh yeah, look at this guy looking out for himself. And he might even get that promotion. But it's a short-term game because everybody else sees what he did Everybody else knows that he's taking care of himself and no one wants that person on a team. It's, it's interesting because in, um, in stand-up comedy, there's a saying, uh, the audience is an x-ray machine. So no matter what you're saying, if you're, if you're even slightly nervous on the inside, they see it and they will pounce. So it's like what you're saying. Now you let me ask you this, hold on. Mm -hmm. If you're nervous and the audience is gonna see it, my guess is the best thing to do is walk out there and go, I am so nervous right now that I'm shaking. And the audience goes, oh, okay, cool. He's admitting it. It's the same thing. One of those rules in there, it's one of the early rules. I think it's rule number two. If you don't know everything, which you don't, don't act like you know everything. Right. Everyone will see right through it. Yeah, you can't pretend. But you know, you, you, a lot of, you know, and, and you talk a lot about, you know, you have a book, The Dichotomy of Leadership, and you talk a lot about dichotomies. Each one of these rules is also about the, the, the negative side. So if someone does feel the need to take credit, it's almost like they have what's called a scarcity complex. They think the resources and the recognition of the world are finite. And so if they don't grab onto their share, they're never going to have recognition, validation, resources, and so on. And, and instead, 
what you're really saying there is have an abundance complex. Like, okay, this person took credit. I have credit to give. I have credit left over because I'm so abundant in my ideas, in the in what I'm going to implement, how I'm going to help people. And so I, what you're really saying is don't act out of fear, act from a place of abundance because more is coming. If I did this, I'm going to do it again and again and again, and I'm going to learn and get better. And I think that's what a lot of your rules are about really is, is looking at the negative side too and avoiding that. Yeah. And that, that's such a, it's such a good point to bring up this idea that there's plenty of credit, right? And when you're leading a team and you give the credit to the boss and you give the credit to the team and you try not to take any, it actually makes people want to give you even more credit because they're looking at you going, wow, we know, we know he did this and he's, he's not even taking credit for it. He, isn't he a great guy? Right. And again, I'm not saying that you should do it so that people say you're a great guy. I'm just telling you that that's what happens. That's what happens. You, you stay humble, you act humble, you give credit away to other people and people look at you and go, wow, I want him on my team. I want to promote that guy. I want to do good work for him. Whereas... If you're that, if you're that knave that's sitting there looking, what'd you call it? Scarcity? What? Scarcity a, complex? A scarcity complex. Yeah. Because you, you think like, oh, I better yes. hold on to what the little I've got or else people are going to steal it from me. Credit or uh, responsibility yeah. or money or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great analogy. It reminds me of another, another part in the book where I'm, I'm talking about the fact that if I can't, if I feel like if I go with your plan, if you and I, we're either peers or you're my boss or I'm your boss or whatever, and you come to me with a plan and it's different than my plan. And I say, no, we're going with my plan. Because I think, if I think in my head that if I appease your plan, that I'm going to look weak, that's because I actually am weak. And the mm -hmm. greatest signification of confidence is when I go, hey, you know what, James? I, I like your plan better. Let's go with that subconsciously or consciously everyone in the room goes dang Jocko's so confident that he just doesn't care he just says oh cool you know what James I like your plan let's go with that and by the way when I do that to you you go oh cool this is now my plan and I'm gonna run with it I'm gonna work extra hard so having true confidence to go oh yeah that sounds good why don't we go with that there's a little section in the book called don't care it's like I, I don't care oh yeah it sounds good let's do that Right, and, and you give a bunch of scenarios where you talk about, you list this as a possible scenario where your, your platoon leader or whatever might say this, you might disagree, everyone might disagree, but if you say, uh, sounds good, hey, also maybe, you know, love the plan, but maybe we might want to consider adding this little part to it, yeah. which by the way is the whole thing. And then <laughs> that's how you're able to get, your, you know, part of this is all about communication too, communication upwards and downwards, because a leader is not, by title, it's kind of just you being your best version in a situation. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things in this book that set it apart a little bit is actually telling people, like, here's what you say. Here, Don't say this. You know, when you come to me with a plan that's not a good plan, I don't say, James, your plan's terrible. I don't like it. Get out of here. We're not doing it. You're dumb. No, I say, you know what? Actually, there's some, there's some good parts around your plan like you just said, hey, have you thought of this right here? If you, th you know, I actually give instructions of what to actually say. Are you going to use them word for word? No, but the idea, the concept of how to 
approach things from an indirect manner, which is really what so much of this stuff boils down to, approaching things from an indirect manner so that people think it's their own idea or they're not, their, their ego is not offended by it. It's so important. And then there's, there's people that say, well, you know, if you have a big, James has a big ego and I need to address that because I'm your boss and you're, you're walking around, it's causing problems. So what, what I should do is just confront you about your big ego and that'll solve the problem. You know, if I have a brutally honest conversation with you, then you'll go, oh, thank, thank you, Jocko, for telling me I have a big ego. I wasn't aware. Thank you for the, the counsel and I'll fix it now. Has never happened everywhere, anywhere. And, and it never <laughs> works anywhere. Yeah. And it's like, but what I can do is like, oh, maybe give your ego a little massage and then talk to you about something else and get develop a relationship where you actually start to trust me and listen to me. And now I have enough influence where I can say, you know, when you, when you hit the guys yesterday about your new plan, it really came off. Like, you know, you thought it was the best and that you were kind of the person that's making all this stuff successful. And you go, Oh really? And I go, yeah, man, I, you might want to, you know, cause now we're friends yeah. and we can talk about it. Whereas this idea that I'm just going to bluntly, you know, punch you in the face with critique. It's, it seems like, and there's, you know, people that run around from a leadership perspective, like, hey, you just need to be brutally honest. And in a fact, of fact, we use the term brutally honest in extreme ownership and dichotomy, like brutally honest debrief. That's that the problem with that is if you if you if that's your go to methodology, people don't listen to you anymore. They just get mad at you. They just disregard what you say. So you got to be more tactful and the indirect approach so much more powerful than the direct approach yeah. 99% of the time. And it's got to be, as we, we mentioned earlier, uh, it, it's got to be sincere because otherwise everyone will say, oh, Jocko's just pandering to him, then he's going to get what he wants. And you've got to find, you know, as you said even much earlier in the podcast, there's no extreme, extreme opinions are usually wrong. Yeah. So if you said that plan is definitely bad or this plan is definitely good, both sides are probably wrong. But if you could kind of point out, okay, this is what I like about this. This is what we have, you know, this is what we have to work on. Or, you know, I like, I, I like this, 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 but what have you thought about this? There's always indirect ways, as long as you're sincere in that first statement, that yeah. kind of opens the door is that sincerity. Yeah. Being sincere, being truthful, caring about your people. And if they don't listen at all, then sometimes there are points where you just, you can't, you can't do it. It can't move forward. Yeah. And, 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 and actually there's an escalation where, you know, I've tried to be indirect with you. You still do keep doing, I go a little bit stronger. You still keep doing what you're doing. I go a little bit stronger. There might be a point where I go, James, you know, I've been, you know, we've been working together for six months now and the entire time you continue to deliver stuff late. And I've tried to tell you like all these different ways that that's not acceptable. And what I'm going to tell you right now is like, if this happens anymore, you're not going to be able to work here. Like, yes, things can get to a point where you have to be brutally honest. You have to be blunt with somebody because they weren't, you know, all the indirect communication that you sent them, they weren't hearing it. So sometimes you do have to do that. And again, that's why these, these, this idea that there's one rule of leadership, be brutally honest, or another rule of leadership, always be indirect. It's like, no, being a leader you, you have to know what the tools are. And you know that whole comparison I wrote in there about woodworking? Did you love that part? Wood woodworking? Okay, so in the book, I talk about the fact that being a leader is like comparable to being a woodworker. Because when you're a woodworker, you have to learn to work with all these different tools, right? Which is just like a leader, you got different tools you can use as a leader. But then you've got to realize that you're applying the tools to different types of wood. 
and different types of wood have different properties, just like different people have different personalities. You've got pine over here, which is really soft, and you've got oak over here, which is really hard. And you're going to use your tools differently depending on which one of these types of wood you have. And then on top of that, each individual piece of pine or each individual piece of oak has different knots in it, and it has splits in it, and it has curves in it. And so you have to actually really modulate the use of your tools with each piece of individual singular piece of wood that exists in the world. That's what you have to learn how to do as a leader. You have to learn the art of leadership. And that's one of the things that makes it so challenging is you can't just say, oh, when I cut a piece of pine, I use this saw in this method. That doesn't work. That blade, that exact blade will not work on a piece of oak or it'll burn the wood. So you have to do the same thing with leadership. It's, it's hard. And what pe- the mistake people make is what we were just talking about. They either apply this tool 100% or they apply this tool 100% and they don't realize that you can actually use 80% of this tool, 20% of this tool, and that's going to give you the, the, the mix that you want to produce the results you're looking for. So this makes me think, what is the role of even the word leader? Because there's one story in the book where the platoon leader you mentioned uh, wasn't loud enough to shout his orders. So, mm-hmm. so if you're in the field and and bullets are firing and, and no one can hear your orders, what good are you as a leader? So you go up, you have a loud voice, and you go up to him and say, "How about let me be the loud voice?" So, you know, you rely on me a little mm-hmm. bit more. And I'm wondering if when something's a, a, a team, okay, yes, one person might have a job called leader, but really nothing's going to work unless all the knives work, unless all, you know, the types of wood are being taken care of. So, so it's kind of this mesh of responsibilities that all have to coordinate together or nothing works. I wonder if really in most situations, there's not really a leader, but a lot of people who are just in tune with these concepts of leadership So you're all basically leaders. Maybe that's oversimplifying it. No, what you're talking about is decentralized command, Mm. right? That everybody that's on a team is supposed to be a leader. And that's absolutely what you want. The The only thing that we have to add to what you just said is that of that group of leaders, let's say we got a team of 10 people, every person on that team is a leader. There's gotta be one leader overall in charge, right? Now, when these subordinate leaders are out in the field making decisions, that's good. They can make decisions. They can make things happen. And you might think to yourself, well, that's going to end up with 10 people going in 10 separate directions. The way that decentralized command works is that that overall leader has to make sure that everyone understands what the mission is, what the goal is, what the broad result of the strategy you're implementing is. So that way, when these subordinate leaders make decisions, their decisions are in support of and aligned with the overall direction that the senior leader has given. And that's what allows it to work. And you're right. There was missions that I went on as a, as a ground force commander. So the senior guy in charge of 30 guys, 40 guys, 50 guys, And the only thing that I would do on a mission is when we got to a target, I'd get on the radio and say, execute, execute, execute. And then the guys would all go and they'd all do what they were supposed to do. They'd all do it right. They'd all get their job done. If there was little adjustments that they'd have to make, they'd make them. They'd take down the buildings. They'd capture the bad guys. They'd search the areas. They'd all assemble back in the vehicles. We'd load up the vehicles and I'd go back to base. In an optimum world, my team knows what the goal is and they're able to execute it without me saying anything other than 
This is what we're trying to accomplish. Does everyone understand that? And again, it's not, um, it's another example of uh, the flip side, which is not having a scarcity complex. Like you don't have to be the one, yeah, I, yeah, boss, I took that, you know, hut or whatever, like, you know, when it was actually somebody on your team or, you know, it, it, it reminds me of an analogy from, here's what, here I'll bring Silicon Valley back into the fold. It reminds me of Google. So Google, if I went to Google and I said, tell me about motorcycles, uh, Google's gonna basically say, hey, I know nothing about motorcycles, but I've done my research. Here's the 10 websites out of a billion that I think are the best 10 websites for motorcycles. Why don't you check them out? And you never have to come back here again. Good luck, but get a good motorcycle. But then when you have another question about, I don't know, vacations, you're gonna go back to Google. You're not gonna go to the motorcycle sites. You're gonna go back to the one who gave you good advice on where to find motorcycles. So, and Google measures success internally by how fast people leave their site. So like if, if, if someone's only on the site for a quarter of a second, that's much better than if they can't find what they're looking for. So they're on their, your, the Google for a minute. And I always think of that, that Google analogy that essentially you wanna be the source. You don't wanna, it's a different way of looking at leadership. You're not, Google's not ordering people go to this motorcycle website. It's the best, trust us. They're just saying, hey, give this a try. We're the best source. You always wanna be kind of the source that people go to when they need it, but otherwise they're on their own. Totally. And uh, I told and Google's a, a trillion dollar company now as yeah. of yesterday. <laughs> That's not bad. Uh, I, I was doing an event yesterday and I ended up telling a story about when I was in Tascania Bruiser, one of the, one of the SEAL platoons, Delta platoon, the platoon commander was, you know, fresh coming back from Iraq. The platoon chief was, he had been what we call shore duty for a few years, kind of not doing operational stuff. And now he was back at a SEAL team. So he was a little bit a little bit behind on kind of the the tactics and a little bit, you know, uh, had, had forgotten some of the stuff and had to catch up a little bit. So when we started doing this one block of training where you're clearing buildings, the platoon commander, you know, started off when we started clearing buildings, he was the one that was saying, hey, move left, move right, go down the hallway. And then as the platoon chief kind of remembered the tactics and started getting getting back into his role, he started stepping up and saying, hey, you go left, you go right, and you go forward. And then the platoon commander came to me and said, you know, hey, the platoon chief's making all the calls now. What am I supposed to do? And I'm like, go celebrate. Because that's exactly what you want. You're right. You want that. You want your team to be able to make those moves. And then if something goes wrong or there's a problem, then you can go, hey, okay, hold and move to the next building. And, and then, And as soon as you say that, you want them to leave your site, like Google, right? You want them to go and do it. You don't want to have to go and actually do the clear the building yourself. You don't want to have to do the task. You want to look and say, okay, here's the task that needs to get done. Here, go go hit that. And then you want them to go run with it. So yeah, that's a good, that's a very good analogy. You don't want to be the person that has to be, the term I use a lot in the book, you don't want to be looking down and in at your team. When you're in a leadership position, you do not want to be looking down and in at your team. You want to be looking up and out where you can see what the next obstacle is, where you can see where the enemy is maneuvering, where you can see what market is opening up. That's where you want to be looking. You don't want to be looking down and in. One of the things that draws us to look down and in is our ego. Because if I got 10 people working for me, there's nothing that feels better than them coming to me and saying, hey, boss, how do we do it? And they say, let me show you how to do it. That feels great. 
I'm the powerhouse. I'm the person that knows everything. Every question I get asked is a, is a symbol of my superior knowledge. And it's really easy to get sucked into that. When I, you know, when my guys would come and ask me a question, hey, how do you think we should do this? I'd be like, go figure it out. Well, and I'm wondering if that's because take Echelon Front as an example, or even take the SEALs. With, with the SEALs, you personally don't have to come up with the core values of your regiment or your platoon or whatever, because they've been defined for you by the United States, by the Navy, by the SEAL program. There's lots of core values that filter down into the leadership. I'm wondering if it's different for a company where the founder or the CEO or whoever has to develop a core values. And then that's how decentralized command happens is everybody gets those core values. So then knows how to respond. If, assuming they're trained right after they start, everyone now has to respond via these core values. So Google has its core value. People should leave our site as quickly as possible because we have the best knowledge on the internet. Right. Y yes, you're correct. And where, where, where companies have a problem is when you start a company and there's five of you, everybody knows, you know, you guys are talking every day and you're the guy and you kind of say, Hey, this is what we're trying to get done. And everyone goes, Oh, cool, cool. And each day they work and they know what decisions they should be making based on, based on your view. When we get to 20 people, all of a sudden there's like two people that aren't quite sure yet. When we get to 100 people, all of a sudden if we don't do a good job of communicating through the chain of command of simplifying, that's such a simple thing. We want people to leave our site as quickly as possible. How awesome is that? That is so simple. That can guide, that guides every decision that that thousands and thousands of people make at that at that company, right? right? Hey, we're, we want people to leave the site as quickly as possible. So simple. So as you grow, you have to simplify your vision, your, your overall, you're calling it a value. I would say you have to simplify your mission or your strategy so that everybody knows it on the front lines. Because otherwise there's somebody on the front lines that goes, hey, wouldn't it be better if they stayed on the site longer so more ads could pop up, right? No, wrong answer. So yes, absolutely. And as you grow, that's one of the that's one of the disconnects that happens. One of the things that really hurts startups is as they grow, they don't think like if you and I work together every day, you wouldn't need to tell like you're talking about your business partner in your investing company. It's like you don't need to sit there and say, well, no, what I'm really trying. You guys know each other. You you have that interaction. Occasionally, maybe you have to state it, but most of the time, it's like we just know what we're trying to do, and so you don't have to like clearly define it. You get to a thousand people in your company, if you don't clearly define it, it's going to be lost. And you'll be wondering why some manager eight levels below you in the chain of command made a horrible decision that's completely against your values. You know, this person decided that instead of taking care of the customer, they were going to make profit. And now you know that's a short-term game, but you know what that person's going to do on Yelp or whatever. They're going to write you a bad review. That's going to be horrible, right? And it's because... You, as the leader, didn't simplify and make that clear what our values are, what we're trying to do as a company, what we're trying to do as a business, and what our mission is. So this is a situation that once happened to me. So in the 90s, in the late 90s, I was running a company that, I started a company, I was running a company that made websites for big Fortune 500 brands and other brands. And uh, again, I don't think this was a long time ago. I might not have been the best at difficult conversations or at really establishing core values. I basically wanted to get rich and I believed the internet. That was my only vision was that everybody needs a website. And then I wanted to get rich off of that. And it was a horrible goal to have because 
I got rich. And then within 18 months, I was poorer than I had ever been in my life. And, but uh, uh, there was one situation that happened where we had an opportunity to pitch the post office to do their website, the US post office. And we were winning. We were, there was really no other competition. And a group of people, like eight people worked all weekend, putting together the proposal. I didn't need to work on it. They knew what to do. They knew our values as a, a design company and to put together websites. And then the project manager, Monday morning, you know, sent it overnight, the proposal sent it, mailed it overnight to the post office and he used FedEx. <laughs> and of course the post office laughed and said, you're out. There's no way you just use FedEx to pitch the post office website. And I kind of had to fire the guy, which maybe was a bad decision. But so two questions really is a, how could I have maybe instilled values a little bit better among the team? So he would have known not to use FedEx and B the reason I felt like he needed to be fired. And by the way, he had just had a child and I liked him, but he, everybody worked all weekend. Everybody gave up their weekends with their family and you know, worked hard for a multi-million dollar project that went down, that they all would have benefited from, got raises from, and it went down the toilet. So I don't know even to this day if I made the right decision firing him. Yep. So there's a bunch of things going on there. Uh, number one, you said, you're like, what could I have done better? Well, you know, we, some of the times that things that we think are common sense, right? People don't see it. You know, I'm some, some engineer that's working on a software site. It's like, they might not make the connection. So we as leaders have to make sure that we say, okay, you know, here's the checklist before we send a package out to somebody. Let's make sure that we've done everything we can to show the client that we are mm. on board with the client, right? These are our rules. These are our final checklists. Okay. So that that's one thing. Um, the other thing is I use another term in the book and you like extreme ownership. So that's cool. This, this term is preemptive ownership. I, I noticed that and I was thinking, is that different than extreme ownership or is it kind of another way of saying it? Well, it's, it's the same thing, but here's the deal. Here's the problem with extreme ownership. Extreme ownership, people think, oh, okay, I get it. When a mistake happens, I take ownership of it, right? Here's the problem with that. The, the mistake already happened. So this FedEx thing already got sent out. The mistake already happened. You taking ownership of it after it happened and saying, hey, guys, I should have done a better job clarifying how important mm -hmm. this client was. It's my fault. Great. You don't fire the guy. You keep the guy. That's great. You took ownership of it. Fine. But the mistake already happened. Millions of dollars lost. Preemptive ownership is you saying, if we drop this client, there's no one to blame but me. Therefore, you know what I'm going to do? Bef hey, I'll be, you guys work all weekend long. When you guys are done Sunday night, I want a phone call. I'm coming in and I'm going to go through this thing one more time. This is our most important client. And I know if it doesn't work, it's my fault. So you do everything in your power to prevent it. And that, so if that, if you, if you had the attitude, like this thing's hundred percent on me and you're, you know, mm. you're a laid back guy. Uh, uh, I'm assuming you're a pretty laissez faire leader. That's pretty hands-off decentralized command. Like, Hey guys, you make it happen. I trust you guys. That's awesome. We love that. That's how they were able to get this thing done so quickly. But the catch is if you said, okay, if we don't get this thing, since I'm the leader of this company, it is 100% on me. Therefore, before this thing goes out, I will come in here 
and look at it and make sure that we're good to go and follow this thing to the end to make sure that it's the way it's supposed to be. That's what preemptive ownership, and that may have helped in this situation. Yeah, yeah, that, that could have, um, you know, also maybe instilling more values in terms of, uh, you know, and I had never run an agency before, so I didn't know what I was doing, but maybe somehow creating a value that says, hey, if you're working on a customer, that's your universe. Like you, you have to live, breathe, think, that customer. If you're working on Burger King, don't eat at McDonald's. Yeah, you know, so you have to love the customer or not work on the project. There's there's one more thing that would help in this situation. So I talk about it. I talk about it in both books. Um, in, in extreme ownership and I talk about it in all the books. I talk about it all the time, and that's this idea of being a tactical genius. Which means if I let you come up with a plan, and you spend eight hours looking at a map and trying to de develop a plan on how to attack a target. You get your whole team, you're all in there, you're, you're looking at this thing, and micro deal, you're going over photographs, you're figuring out the best way to do this. You're so absorbed and you're so close to the problem that when I come in at altitude, mm. I can see things that you don't see. So in this situation, you had these guys so engaged, they're working the whole weekend, they're seeing this thing from point blank range. They didn't take a step back and say, okay, what does this look like? You know, okay, we've, we've literally spent the entire weekend trying to work on a proposal for the United States Postal Service, and we're about to send it in a FedEx box. Does anyone think that makes any sense whatsoever? Everyone would have said, oh, no, we're idiots. Okay, sorry. Thanks, boss. So by stepping back and looking at things from a different perspective, you will see things that the team on the ground won't see. That's why this idea of detachment is so important. None of those individuals, were they bad people on your team? No, no, they're good people. You said the guy was a hard worker. The guy, when he realized he did that, it must have been, you know, just he must have been sick to his stomach. But the reason that he's doing that is because he is so close to the problem, so engaged in it, that they lose visibility of anything. So as a leader, once again, if you'd have been looking down and if you'd have stayed there the whole weekend and you'd been looking, you, you might've missed it too. It seems real obvious now, you might've missed it too. You might've said, yep, go to the post office. If you would've, but if you would've taken a step back and observed it from an altitude, that gives us as leaders the ability to see things that people on the team in the trenches don't normally see. So those are some things that, could have helped out in that situation. Yeah, and the idea of being detached is so important, whether you're on the battlefield, I'm assuming, or whether you're in a sport, you know, it's very important to kind of like almost hypnotize yourself to be detached or in, in business slash leadership, like you're saying. And that that's a theme that runs through the uh, your very first chapter to the end, like being detached is really important. That's a, a critical skill. Yeah, and in this case, you can actually say you were too detached. You were so detached that this thing got launched and you hadn't even looked at it. That's how detached you were. And the guys on the team were like, oh man, he trusts us so much. This is awesome. And then they looked at you and said, wow, we could have used a little oversight. Yeah. So you have to, you have to keep a balance. You know, it's funny, like in games like chess, you could stare at a set of moves or let's say you're in a tournament and it's high stakes and uh, you could look at a set of moves for a really long time thinking there must be something there. I got to find the right thing. And sometimes just getting up 
while it's still your move, the clock's ticking, walking around the room and then sitting back down. So you start to see it as a whole new problem. That's often the best solution. It's a way to get detached. That is a perfect description of detachment. Mm -hmm. you, you, and I talk about in the book, you literally take a step back from the table, take a step back from the meeting, take a step back from the guys that are down there in the weeds planning this project. You take a step back. If anyone on that team would have taken a step back and taken a look at that chessboard of this thing that's being shipped, one of them would have said, you know what? Wait, let's make sure we use premier United States Postals. You know, they would have they would have actually made it like a thing yeah. that that would have show it would have been they would have they would have seen that. But when you're too close to the chess table, you don't see all the moves. And you know, again, this is this happened like exactly 21 years ago and it's still on my mind. So these things affect you. Like when you're making a bad leadership decision that affects lives, it's uh, it damages you a little. If you're not, if you haven't quite learned the lesson, or if you haven't yeah. really thought it through, you, you keep thinking about it. No, so it's, that's why that's why these principles are so important. And that's one of the things that bothers you about this is that you fired that guy, and deep inside, you even though you know he did a knucklehead thing, you think to yourself, you know what? I, it was my company. I'm the guy in charge. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't provide the oversight that was needed. And you're a nice person. And that right there is, is enough to like bother you for 21 years. Yeah. You know, that, that you had to, you fired that guy and, you know, you might've looked at the other members of the team and said, well, I can't, you know, this guy blew it. Everyone worked so hard. Kind of like what you said. And you could have told the team, Hey guys, what just happened, I allowed to happen. This is my fault. And I'm not firing this guy. I need to do a better job. And you'd be more comfortable with that right now. I can almost promise you. I don't mean to do like a psychoanalysis of you. And I don't no, mean but, to dredge but, up demons of your past. I'm going to cry all night tonight. I'm going <laughs> to try to track this guy down. I can't even remember his name. I just remember his face now. Ugh. But, uh, uh, you know, and then one, one more thing. So obviously it's not a $100 million business. But I treat this podcast very seriously. This is my sixth year doing it. I'm always trying to improve. And lately I've been trying to think of, well, what are core metrics of success? What are core values? What am I trying to say? So that it's not like the other 2 million podcasts. And I know, I know it's different, but sometimes when you, when you put things to words, that is much stronger than just simply knowing intuitively that it's different. And so... I'm just trying to think of how, and as I was reading this book, I was thinking, what, how do these principles even apply to a podcast? Like I have to think of, you know, what my vision is, how to communicate it, how to communicate it to listeners, how to communicate it to people who work with me, you know, and hope we, hopefully we all have the same vision. I don't know. Do you do that with your podcast, for instance? I do have that in my mind. And what I've said about my podcast is my podcast, even though my podcast is about war and even though my podcast is about leadership and even though my podcast covers human atrocity, what my podcast is really about is human nature. It's about people. It's about understanding people. And the better you understand people, the better that you're gonna lead people. And the, the, the clearest reveal of human nature comes in very traumatic times, like war, like atrocities. So. That's what my podcast is about, is to try and teach people about human nature so that they can lead other people and they can lead themselves better than they currently are. 
myself included. And by the way, I get more, probably like you, I get more out of my podcast than anybody. No one else even comes close to getting as much out of my podcast oh, as I do. Oh yeah, it's totally a selfish thing totally to selfish. be a podcaster. Because whatever I'm dealing with in life, that's the person I'm calling to come on the podcast so I can ask them, <laughs> hey, what do you think of this, this, this? They don't know. That's what happened to me yesterday and I'm just trying to figure it out. But that is a, a, a core thing that happens in the podcast. But I guess- you know, I've always thought, okay, I want people, I want people to always listen to this and by the end of it say, boy, my life is better now than when I started that episode. Because mm -hmm. there's something, there's some ideas in here. Uh, a, I was entertained by the storytelling and so on, but B, there was something in there that was actionable that I'm gonna use at least one thing to change my life for the better or at least try it. And you know, I don't know. I'm still thinking around this because I feel there are a lot of podcasts that also attempt that. And I don't think it's good enough to just be better than them. I think you have to also be different. And I'm just always trying to think of ways to be to be different or new or reinvent. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing to go through. Well, what we talked about earlier with, you know, looking for these chinks in the armor, looking for these points of weakness, looking for these opportunities. I also feel like that with, you know, with my podcast is like, if I see something, some, some, some area that I need to move into, I'll, I'll move into it. I'll move into it, you know, gladly. And, and I think that's, what's good about what you're doing is like, you can see an opportunity an area of knowledge that you want to explore and you can go, Oh, okay. I, I, who knows about that area of knowledge? How can I get them here? I'll get them here and, and talk about it. So I think that's, that turns out to be a very, a very positive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, once again, Jocko, it's so great always having you on the podcast. I feel like, I feel like we could just in general hang out and talk forever. The only time we actually hang out is when we have these two hour conversations on the podcast, but yeah. that's great. It's always so so much fun talking to you. We've talked now for every single one of your books. I know, it's so, awesome, I appreciate it. You know, and your kid books too. Yeah. I think this is like the fourth or fifth time you're on the podcast. Are you working out, what's what's next? What do you, so, so right now you have Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Great book, I highly recommend it. Um, I've got 50 pages like, bookmarked and, and turned over here. Uh, 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 so I, I highly recommend it as well as uh, extreme ownership, dichotomy of leadership, discipline equals freedom, your kid books, way of the warrior kid versions <laughs> one through infinity. What, what's uh, a people should buy leadership strategy and tactics, but what's the next thing you're working on? Uh, well, if you know, if people want to follow me on social media and get in Twitter wars with me, yeah, I won't respond. But Jocko, how could you be for <laughs> this? Uh, at Jocko Willink, uh, Echelon Fronts, my leadership consulting company, and and if you want to get in touch with us, I got a bunch of outstanding guys with incredible leadership experience that really know and truly understand these leadership tactics. That's EchelonFront.com, the company where we make all these manufactured goods in America is called Origin Maine. So Origin Maine, the state, OriginMaine.com. You can go out there and check out not only the clothes that we make, but also the supplements that we make. And other than that, I'm going to continue to do what I do, which is drive forward, look for opportunities, and try and help the people that are around me to have better lives. Have Have you ever thought about taking the stories you tell on your podcast and making that into a book, kind of like these lessons from more? Well, that leadership strategy and tactics 85% of it 
is from questions that I got repeatedly over and over and over again mm -hmm. on the podcast that I kept having to explain the tactic that I used, the strategy that I used to handle these scenarios. So that book is a direct result of me answering questions over and over again on the podcast. So that's what that book is. As far as my kids' podcast, the Warrior Kid podcast, in the later episodes, I started telling stories from Uncle Jake that kind of explain how he developed his values as a man. And so those will probably end up in a book because the stories are, they're just powerful to tell and they're, they're, they're parables. They teach real true lessons that are good for kids to learn and, and adults. I, I guess, I guess one last question. Cause I, I get this a lot where it's like you were saying earlier, people sometimes want to say, well, what's the one, you know, secret mind blowing thing, which once I hear it, I'm going to be like an amazing leader. Uh, everything's going to change when actually the answers are very, the foundation is always, it has to be simple. It has to be basic rules. And it's kind of the storytelling, which explains how those rules are put in use and how effective they are and so on. And, you know, I get, I get the same thing a lot. Like people say, what's the one investment I can make that'll make me a billion dollars or whatever. And I, and, and you find yourself repeating the same thing over and over again. Like for me, I repeat, you know, physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. If you focus on that, other things will take care of itself one way or the other. That's kind of, you build this foundation and then other things start to grow. Do you ever get frustrated saying the same thing over and over again? No. And the, the reason that I don't is because, is because leadership is an inoculation and life is an inoculation. And I, I think, you know, I had one of my guys, Mike Sorelli, who's at Echelon Front now, and he was teaching this, this junior officer course. And I used to come in and teach the junior officers the fundamental principles of combat leadership. And I, I would do it, you know, once every few weeks for Mike. And about the 10th time I went in to give the brief, you know, he sat down in the back of the room with his pen out. And I was like, hey, are you going to stay and watch this? And he goes, yeah. And I go, why? I've already done it 10 times. And he goes, because I learned something new every time. And I think that that attitude of, you know, wanting to hear the same thing from a different angle and also at a different time, you, when you're in one leadership role and I tell you something, it means one thing to you. You move up a level and you have more people. I tell you the exact same mm. thing, yeah, but you're seeing point. it from a different angle and now it means something more to you. So uh, I don't, I don't mind repeating and, and the, the principles it's been in, it's been cool to see these principles withstand all these different types of companies, all these things in the military, all these different industries, all these different peoples, all these different size companies, and it's still the same principles. To me, that's not, that doesn't frustrate me at all. To me, that, that makes me happy that these things are tested against time and duress. Hmm. All right. Well, once again, Jocko, thanks for coming on. I hope you come on many more times onto the podcast, leadership strategy and tactics. Thanks once again. All right. Thanks for having me back, man. My brother from another mother. Excellent. Yes, very true. <laughs> right on, man. Thanks. This is so awesome. great. Yeah.